and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This is half an hour or thereabouts where we, the Lost in Science team, will be talking about sciencey things. Who are we? Well, I am Stu, and on the show with me this week is the trusty Chris. Chris, what have you brought in for us this week? Stu, I think this could be the first time that I've been called trusty, so... um. I'm going to totally put that in my resume, I reckon. <laughs> Go for it. Put me as a reference anytime. Exactly. Well, um, this week, you know how I like to just kind of keep an eye on and follow up old stories. And I'm kind of doing that again. I'm reversing back over some things that I've run over in the past. And um, <laughs> one is uh, one is just a very brief one I'll mention because I think, you know, there's a, not a lot to be to be said out of it at this point. And that is the ongoing search for the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. I just want to give a quick update on where that's at. Can you tell us where it's at now? I mean, do we, is, this, is this something we, we can just chat about right now? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, there's two kind of main hypotheses that are thrown around. There's the, the lab leak um, hypothesis, which, um, you know, I keep labelling as a conspiracy theory because there's very little evidence for it aside the existence of a virology institute in the same city where the outbreak happened. And look, apparently there's been another agency in the US government who said that they are subscribing to the lab leak hypothesis with low confidence in the evidence they're using, but no one knows what that is. Um, There's a push to have everything declassified, but essentially, yeah, we don't know what kind of most likely intelligence information or that rumours that they're, they're basing that on effectively. So, yeah, that's still speculation, it seems. It's it's one of the things that, you know, and, and I've been reading about this myself, that, that intelligence agencies tend to put together scenarios of what is a possibility and they gather evidence and put it, you know, put it in the file where if something actually turns out to be true, they can act on it quicker because they've already looked at the scenario and figured out maybe how they would react if it was true. And I think that's kind of some of what is coming through Mm. with these reports is that they're kind of just hedging their bets, which is kind of what intelligence agencies do a lot of. And and another thing I've read too is that um, some of the intelligence analysts around have been saying, you know, even if it is a lab leak, which there's not very good evidence that it is, even if it is, it doesn't even mean that it was somehow man-made or deliberate or anything like that. It just means that possibly they were working on something in a lab somewhere. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's 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 a pretty it's a pretty amorphous um, hypothesis. It'd be pretty hard to test anyway. Yeah, it is. I mean, it would be it would be quite difficult to test with um, scientific evidence, and that's one of the um, I guess the, the drawbacks there. You know, it kind of especially you're relying again on intelligence leaks and that kind of information coming out from the the Chinese authorities, which brings us to my next bit of kind of development which is that there was some data that was that a researcher called Florence Debar came across on a, a genetics database um, that was about some samples that were taken at the, the Huanan seafood market. Um, and apparently there's a paper that's been in preprint stage for a while. I won't go into too much of the detail because it's, it's mostly circumstantial evidence. There was a paper that's been preprint for a while and it indicated that there was, you know, human DNA and viral DNA found in the market. Um, but there was some kind of indication that there was some other animal DNA there. And this data indicated 
that um, it was perhaps raccoon dogs and civets, which are the raccoon dogs in particular known to be susceptible to COVID-19. Now this data was taken down pretty quickly after it was discovered. So again, look, this was this is actually a samples taken at the market. These weren't swabs of actual animals, just shows you that animals and virus were present at the same time. Um, but again, this kind of raises the thing of where, you know, how long has this data been known about it? Why is this only just being kind of half released now? What investigations, if any, have been made? Um, it seems that I think there was denials that any of those animals were being sold at the market and that they were illegal to sell them at the market, which was, of course, promptly shut down after it became kind of identified as a you know, main source of transmission. So, yeah, again, it kind of points to, I suppose, a lack of information coming out from the investigative side. And it wouldn't be surprising if there was more data out there somewhere. But until that is disclosed, again, we're kind of guessing on this sort of thing as well. I mean, you think if there was animals that were the chief suspects in being the vectors for this virus, that there would be an investigation. But apparently the local authorities are denying that any animals in China have been infected with the virus, which seems kind of implausible given the circumstances. And given the reports of infections in animals overseas. It exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so it's all kind of, again, speculation and waiting for more information to come out. Um, science is doing its best, but, yeah, without the human element, it is very hard to answer these questions. So, yeah, there's not enough, I think, information on that, so I'm not going to talk about that in detail. Instead, I am going to go up another old story that I've talked about before, the good old the multiverse, inspired by the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once that won every Oscar all at once. I am talking about the, the quantum multiverse. Just going to go through that a bit again, have a bit of a chat about that. And I don't know, guess, talk about, say, the philosophical implications, including, say, what it might mean for free will and those sort of things. Wave your sausage fingers in the air and shake them like you just don't care. Um, that's great. Um, also, I'm, I'm talking about some new research that's come out this month to do with in vitro fertilization. And this is not new technology as such it's it's been investigated for quite a while so i thought i'd jump in and have a little bit of a look at the background in ivf and some of the advances that are coming out at the moment which might change a whole lot of things but i'll get into the details of that a bit later in the show so please stay tuned anything of interest to the uh, scientific community together you and i are going to make the greatest single contribution to science since the creation of fire. It's a big scientific experiment. What do I know? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. All right, yes, you're listening to Lost in Science, and I am talking about the, inspired by the Oscar-winning movie, Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is about the multiverse of branching timelines. I am going to be talking about multiverses. There are many different kinds of multiverses kind of hypothesized by physics, but I'm going to restrict myself to the one that is most similar to that depicted in the movie, which is essentially the quantum multiverse. The idea that every possibility branches out um, and the timeline is constantly splitting off like that. This is known as the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. 
So, so this is based on the idea that that subatomic particles can do more than one thing, and because they can do more than one thing, that in in this hypothesis they do all of the things that they can do, and each time they do those things, there's a new universe created from that. Is that is that a, a summary of what the theory is? Essentially, yeah, pretty much. I've got to say that quantum mechanics is kind of a very mysterious thing, and this is one particular interpretation. There are many kind of different ideas. There are also kind of different versions of the many worlds interpretation, I suppose. But I'm going to give what to me is kind of the vanilla version, the most sort of straightforward version. Often the easiest uh, example to give is that of the, the famous cat in the box. But, you know, I am, don't really want to talk about Schrodinger. Um, given his, Fair enough. Given, given uh, the nature of the, the man. So um, I'm going to talk about a related experiment known as Wigner's Friend. Uh, it was a physicist called Eugene Wigner who came up with this notion, which is very similar to the, to the cat in the box. In this case, you don't put a cat in a box. You put a person, um, the friend of Eugene Wigner. You know, but it's still essentially the same experiment, though we don't have like a thing where the person is is killed or not. We have them performing some other quantum experiment. We'll just let them do some sort of quantum experiment inside the box. And the idea is that until you open the box, you don't know what the result of that experiment. So they inside the box should know, but you don't know. Okay? Yeah. Now, so there was an old idea, which I guess the Copenhagen interpretation, which is one of the things that um, came up, they came up with in the early days of how quantum mechanic works, which is that when you do a measurement um, of a quantum system, you collapse the wave function as it is, and it gets it takes on a definite value. And for a long time, nobody really understood how the measurement would do this thing. People speculated that, say, it's the consciousness of the observer that does it somehow magically or some other thing going on. Now, if you subscribe as folks to the consciousness idea, then the, the friend making the measurement inside the box would collapse the wave function and that'd be the end of it. But these days, most physicists don't think there's some magical feature of consciousness that will do that. Um, and that instead they believe that until you open the box, the um, there is still a superposition. There is like the two states at once, I suppose, or the two different results of the experiment. And the person themselves is um, is in the superposition state because they become entangled with the experiment that they're doing. You with me so far? Yeah, yeah, I think I think so. Yeah. So then, when you open the box, um, essentially, what's happening there is this. Uh, this thing called decoherence, which is basically the outside world destroys the quantum state, the quantum superposition. Um, but instead of the old sort of measurement idea that you're collapsing the wave function to a definite value, what it does is it breaks the superposition into the two possibilities. Essentially, it splits the universe into two parallel possibilities. They both exist. They're kind of mathematically equal. Um, there's not one chosen over the other. It's just that they are now separate and cannot cannot <clears throat> they cannot interact anymore so effective so effectively you get two versions of the same universe as a result of opening the box yeah that's right that's right but there's yeah. still the idea is that until you open the box though you still have this quantum superposition state where it's kind of both things at once but can kind of interfere and interreact now the question is then what does the person inside the box experience now, most physicists seem to believe that in this, in this um, thought experiment that if you open the box and ask them what they thought, 
you seeing a definite result of the experiment, you ask them what happened, they are going to give an answer that's consistent with the result of the experiment. So they're going to say, nothing weird happened, I, the experiment, I got this result. Yeah, yeah. You from the outside will know that they must have been in a superposition state. And there's perhaps measurements you could do to determine that there was actually a superposition going on. It's just that they don't necessarily experience it from the inside. Or right. when asked after the fact, they don't remember that experience. So there's two different kind of versions of reality being seen. Okay. You, you seeing one from outside the box and them seeing one from inside the box. Yeah. Now, okay. let's run with this idea and consider that perhaps the box is the whole universe. If you could be outside the box, then you could see the different kind of possibilities there. Um, but the people inside the box, being the whole universe, don't see the separate possibilities. They only see their own individual timeline, as it were. Yeah. Which, to me, raises the idea that perhaps there's not this decoherence idea. Perhaps these, um, these different possibilities are splitting into these non-interacting timelines. Maybe they are in a kind of a superposition that could perhaps interact with other timelines which would be the kind of thing that you get in science fiction movies. But um, as far as I know, that hasn't really been explored in a big way. Um, but the, essentially, that's the idea, that essentially that these, um, yeah, the, the different possibilities all exist, are equally real, it's just that you can't, you can only experience one. Your, con your existence only experiences one because of the, the macroscopic non-quantum nature of uh, the way human consciousness works. And I mean, this, this is an interesting part of it too is that I, I realize quantum physics is a, is generally about very very small things interacting in the universe and the idea of blowing it up to the macro scale of human beings interacting in boxes and all of those sorts of things does it really work that way this is this is the kind of question is is does it work on a scale where it could mean there's multiple versions of everything um is that is that what the is that what the quantum physics shows or is it more uh, you know is it more subtle than that well i guess that the point of the many worlds interpretation is to try and to get rid of this question of how do you change between the microscopic and the macroscopic world um it's trying to say that yes the the different possibilities exist at every level um we just can't see them because we're inside the box Okay, so if we were outside the universe, we'd be able to see all of the potential universes all at once. Yeah, that's right, that's right. E everything, everywhere, all at once. In, in exactly, fact. exactly. But so I guess the question is, what does this mean from a philosophical point of view? In particular, say, what does it mean for free will? So um, on the one hand, you could say, like the kind of the old idea of, say, a deterministic clockwork universe, you know, the, um, everything is predetermined, everything can be calculated going on. Now, so you could say that in this kind of multiverse view, because anything can happen, there is not one single determined future, um, that the, all, the, all the possibilities are there. And so it kind of restores free will in that sense. But on the other hand, you could argue that because everything happens, your choices don't matter, you know, um basically every different possibility is realized um you know if you i like to think of things like this you go for a job interview there's going to be a universe where you get the job one where you don't get the job and both are equally real 
So what does it matter what you do in the interview, essentially? Because both things are going to happen. I mean, you know, there's going to be one version where, you know, you rip your pants on the way in and run away to the to the bathroom and hide. I mean, there's going to be so many alternate versions, surely. Well, that is one of the weaknesses with this, um, with this um, interpretation as well, in that um, not everything is explained. Like, for instance, the idea that you might um, rip your pants is extremely unlikely um, for most people, I imagine. Um, so, and it doesn't really, if kind of both, if you think of it as universes, it's hard to say that one, for instance, is like 90% real and one universe is only 10% real. You know, it's hard to see how the probabilities work in this sense, if one is more likely mm. than another, because both things exist. It's an interesting idea to think what it means. Um, I should point out, again, not everyone accepts it. There are different interpretations of quantum, uh, quantum mechanics. Um, but this is really, I guess, one of the... It is, for all its bizarreness and the fact that it posits multiple universes, it is actually one of the more straightforward interpretations because it doesn't add on anything extra apart from infinite universes uh it's an interesting thing to think about what it means philosophically and i suppose that's one of the things about the, this particular movie it's a good kind of exploration of what this idea means for humans and for human existence so yes i would recommend seeing the movie but yeah and think about if the multiverse is real what does it mean to you or us i think we're lost we're not lost not even any short range radio signals yet except for a single very powerful radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. Science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's uh, it's mostly on the theoretical side. What's so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. It's often hard to see how science works, except in hindsight, as some scientific advances take many, many years and often decades or even longer than a century to reveal their true value. And some people might be old enough to remember, for example, the first baby born from in vitro fertilization technology. Uh, that was Louise Brown, who was born in Manchester in the UK in 1978. Now, wow. I know you are old enough, Chris, but you probably don't remember the news reports, I'm sure. Um, uh, look, I I remember there being a thing about it, but I don't know whether it was her or later test tube babies, as they were called. But I remember it yeah. being a very, a very novel concept back in, the, back in the 1980s. Yeah, well, 1980 was the first... Uh, IVF baby born in Australia too so I you know I, I was definitely around for it but I can't say I remember I, the news wasn't my favorite show I'll, I'll have to say um, at that age but um, in vitro literally means in glass which means the process of fertilization in IVF the meeting of eggs and sperm happens outside of a living body in a test tube or other lab where I'm not sure exactly what they would use for this process. Probably not a test tube, but... Some sort of Petri dish kind of thing, I imagine. Um... Yeah, po possibly tiny little, you know, there's all sorts of lab wear out there. But as you said, Chris, it did give the IVF babies the nickname of test tube babies. Um, seems to have faded away a little bit as it has become more common. Uh, and, and it is commonly used now for... for people who have trouble conceiving in other ways. Um, I think the, the, the latest figure I could find was there's at least 8 million babies worldwide have been born through IVF. Oh, look, we have, we have two, two children and one of them was born through IVF. 
Um, they are twins, but um, that was one of those peculiarities. But yeah, certainly we um, we went down the IVF path. Twin, twins because they arrived at the same time, right? More than more than anything else, yeah. Yeah, they were at the same time, but they were yeah came about in different ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, as I said, eight million is the is the figure I could find, but this is from twenty fifteen, so it's, it's obviously been some more babies since then. It seems to be something that people are quite fond of doing. Um, the technology has a long history, well before the first IVF baby was born, though, and research into human IVF started much earlier, obviously, than the the nineteen seventies. So I looked into this way back in 1891. Wow. Professor Walter Heap of Cambridge University successfully transferred live embryos from a white Angora rabbit to a pregnant rabbit of a different rabbit breed. Now, the reason you had to put the live embryos in a pregnant rabbit was because the conditions have to be right to develop the embryos. So... The uh, the second rabbit later gave birth to two healthy white Angora rabbits as well as her own offspring. So it was successful? Yeah, transplanted embryos from one rabbit to another rabbit and live rabbits were born. In 1891, this is, this is quite mind-boggling how early that was successful. Um, Many, many experiments followed on from that, mostly using rabbits as their model organisms because rabbits have very famously short reproductive cycles, uh, including fertilized egg extractions and embryo transfers, as well as in vitro fertilization experiments. In 1958, so there's all sorts of things throughout the early 20th century, but including a couple of wars which disrupted all sorts of things. But in 1958, a British scientist, Anne McLaren, uh, now Dame Anne McLaren, uh, and her team successfully grew extracted mouse embryos in vitro and transferred them to female mice, resulting in successful birth of live pups. And the following year, Min Chui Chang showed that embryos could be created in vitro and successfully develop into rabbits in his experiments in Massachusetts in the United States. So Anne McLaren's team took mouse embryos uh, and take, took them out of a mouse, grew them in vitro, and then transferred them to a, a pregnant mouse. The uh, Min Chui Chang's experiment actually created embryos in vitro, which was the real jump. That was the real leap across. So that's the real IVF idea yeah yeah so they they combined sperm and eggs in vitro outside and created embryos grew the embryos and then transplanted them now in in you know possibly predictable and also reasonable uh turn of events ethical concerns slowed the development of human ivf through the 1960s and 1970s but by the end of the 1970s multiple babies had been born using this new IVF technology. Um, so kind of, it was, it was about 20 years from uh, Min Chui Chang's um, success to the first human baby being born through IVF. But the technology has continued to improve since then, including development of cryopreservation of embryos, which is, was again, a big jump forward because it improved 
the or allowed for better timing of implantation so they could create embryos and then implant them at the best time for the mother which increased the success of the of the of the pregnancy basically so cryo cryopreservation you mean like very low temperatures or frozen Fro- frozen embryos basically yeah, okay. is is how it's commonly referred to but that also um, meant you know technology that allowed freezing of eggs and freezing of sperm there's a whole lot of uh, developments that came out of that cryotechnology as well um, and there's all sorts of other methods to improve outcomes for people with low fertility for example they can you know collect sperm over a long period of time and use it all at once or they can inject it directly into eggs and all sorts of different methods to to create uh, successful embryos basically um and as this uh ivf research has continued improvements are ongoing so that people who may may have been unable to conceive 50 years ago can give birth to their own biological babies which is a pretty amazing uh leap forward but we're now approaching a new era in IVF technology where the sperm and eggs may not be the only ingredients going into IVF test tubes. So um, three-parent IVF was approved in the UK in 2015. So this is kind of old news now, um, where mitochondrial material from a donor may be included in the new embryo to prevent a range of genetic disorders. So they basically remove some of the mitochondria or all of the mitochondria from the egg and replace it with donor mitochondria which prevents a number of genetic disorders probably around 2000 diseases that are carried in the mitochondria in 2019 pluripotent stem cells from female mice were used to create artificial eggs which were fertilized by mouse sperm cells and developed into healthy pups so the possibility of women with non-viable eggs being biological mothers may now be possible in the future. So pluripotent stem cells means rather than taking egg cells from a mouse, they took stem cells or pluripotent cells from a mouse and turned them into egg cells, which is, again, a pretty amazing uh, bit of manipulation there. Um, now, on top of that, just published in Nature this month is some new research from Japan that has shown the ability to use a process called in vitro gametogenesis to turn male mouse stem cells into eggs. So they take pluripotent male stem cells, discard the Y chromosome duplicate the X chromosome and turn a male cell into an egg cell. And they've actually successfully fertilized these egg cells and produced live pups in very, very small numbers. So 630 implanted embryos in the experiment that they've published in Nature, only seven living pups as a result of 630. But that is that is a, a still a pretty amazing advance in in that technology so mice are a very well studied model organism that's something that's been used for many years we understand the genetics of mice very well and the techniques required for manipulating mouse chromosomes have not been easy to transfer to other species so even though we can do all sorts of things with 
mouse DNA and manipulating of you know stem cells and pluripotent cells in mice those techniques are not easy to do with anything else so we haven't no no one's been able to replicate this in other species pretty much at all um, and this in itself is a barrier to developing this technology further and it's a long way off being ready to even think about trying it on humans but uh, you know, if you think about only 20 years between the original mouse IVF and human IVF success, and with much more advanced research techniques that we have now, um, it may well be a lot closer than we think. And that is all we have time for this week on Lost in Science. Thank you for joining us in Getting Lost. If you have any questions or suggestions for the team, get in touch with us by email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. You can send cheap tweets to us at lostinscience1 on Twitter, or you can find us on the ubiquitous Facebook Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.